Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now from the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago and CNN Audio, The Axe Files. With your host, David Axelrod. Though she probably would blanch at the suggestion, Sarah Paretsky is an important American cultural figure. A best-selling author and grandmaster of the crime novel, she blazed new trails for women and women crime writers with her character V.I. Warshawski, a smart, streetwise Chicago private detective fighting for the powerless in a tough and often corrupt world. 41 years after her first Warshawski novel was published, Paretsky is preparing to launch her 22nd in April. I sat down with her this week to talk about her life, her work, and a world that's grown no less complicated since V.I. Warshawski first hung her fictional shingle. Sarah Paretsky, I've been looking forward to seeing you for a long time because I've been a fan of your work. You're the grand dame of hard-boiled crime mystery writing, and you're a trailblazer in that. And beyond that, you've led a really interesting life. You may deny it, (laughs) but I think our listeners will have a different view. But I wanted, before we get into your, your writing career, I wanted to talk a little bit about your life's journey and starting with your family. I mean, I think we have some similar background. My father came over during the pogroms. I think you're my grand, his, grand, my father's mother, yeah. well, both his parents, yeah. Yeah. So tell me about that. Well, I have to say it's been on my mind a lot I'm lately. Sure. Mine um, as well. My great-grandfather, my grandmother's father, was murdered in a pogrom. They broke into the house and shot him in bed in front of his wife. And in Lithuania. Children, right? In, right, near mm-hmm. Vilna. Mm-hmm. My grandmother is a Polish count. This count was so important that even when the communists took power, they left him alone and let him keep his title and his lands. But he had a hunting lodge outside Vilna, and my great-grandfather managed the hunting lodge. He thought my grandmother, who was the oldest child, was a smart little girl, and he had her enrolled in the local girls' school, which would have been Catholic. So my great-grandfather was murdered, and my grandmother was just kind of out there in the public eye. She feared for her safety, so my grandmother was 13. They got her on a boat to New York to keep her out of harm's way. And um, it's uh, one of those things. Uh, Two of her sisters joined her before the 1924 immigration law. Yeah. My father came in 22 from Ukraine, just under the wire. Just under the wire. Yeah. Well, everyone else in the family was massacred in the Shoah down to the smallest mm-hmm. infant. And so it just feels kind of horrible to me right now thinking about this, that the only reason I exist is because my great-grandfather was murdered and they sent my grandmother to New York to get her out of harm's way. Well, I know you think a lot about what's going on in the world. 
What do you make of the anti-Semitism that we've, the wave of anti-Semitism that we've seen, uh, not just since October 7th, but for some years before that? You know, I don't understand it, to tell you the truth. I just, I don't understand. Well, I understand this, that it's convenient to have one group of people that is marginal with minimal power that you can blame for everything that's wrong in the world. And that if you belong to a different marginal group, it's easier to attack these less powerful people than it is to go up against the real power structure. I thought about that with um, Minister Farrakhan, for example, that he was denied his, his chance to perform as a violinist, I think it was, going into prep school. And that was, that was very much a waspy prep school that shut the doors on him. But it's easier to blame the Jews than it is to try to really take on a massive kind of power structure that may have some Jews in it, but it's mostly non-Jewish. I know the reason I wanted to ask you about it also was because I know that you grew up in Lawrence, Kansas. Your father was the first tenured Jewish professor at the University of Kansas, and that wasn't easy. Yeah, actually, I learned he was the second, so um, I have to retract what I put in my memoir. My guess is the first wouldn't offer any spontaneous <laughs> rebuttal, so, but uh, but um, yeah, it was. Um, it, we were very much like giraffes in the town. I don't know that that there was blatant anti-Semitism, although there were real estate covenants which um, excluded Jews, people of color. And um, there's a much larger indigenous population in Lawrence than there is African-American, although that's a complicated story, too. But um, you guys ended up sort of in a more rural area because that was where my parents could buy a house yeah. when they wanted to, when they were looking to buy a, a real house. And the, the realtor actually told them because they didn't seem very Jewish, she would be glad to show them property outside the the zone, so to speak, the mud flats along the Kansas River, which uh, even in the 1950s didn't have indoor plumbing. And um, my mother was just furious, so they bought this old farmhouse in the country. And in those days, you know, now a two-room country school, you wouldn't get a equitable education. But gosh, my brothers and I, we were, we were these chubby, unathletic kids. But in this school, you had to, everyone had to play sports so that they could have a team. And, you know, I loved playing baseball. I was a terrible athlete, but I loved it. And there were 11 kids in the seventh and eighth grades. Mm -hmm. And so all 11 of us had to play. And so it was a great experience for us just uh, having to, just having that environment. But when you went to high school, I know that you kind of confronted anti-Semitism in a, in a more overt way. The Lawrence Jewish community was very small. I was usually, or my brothers and I, were often the only Jewish kids in any given classroom. My parents were not observant in a mm -hmm. strict way. I mean, they were atheists, but it was important to them to have Jewish identity. A secular Jews, yeah. Right. But um, for some reason, when I was 15 and 16, I was the designated person to go speak to local Christian churches on on what 
Judaism was all about. I don't know why they picked me. Um, just like I don't know why you picked me. But anyway, I would talk about what I would know about Jewish history and practice, and, which wasn't a lot. And then the, the first question was always, but why do Jews control all the world's money? And I'm like, uh, that was the first time I had heard that we did. So I was kind of at a loss for an answer. So I, I all this is so much on my mind just because of all the events of yeah. the recent two months. But I, anyway. I, I, I also read that there were religious ceremonies in your school and that you would. Oh my God. Yes. I had forgotten that. Yes. <laughs> so the um, Supreme Court decision banning prayer in school had been and had been handed down and um we had this every year the thursday before easter there was a mandatory attendance at a religious revival in the school auditorium so this year that in 63 i protested this having to attend this and i and a guy whose parents were progressive whatevers and three catholic girls were locked in the principal's office for the duration of the um of the revival and it was it was such literally a, locked you couldn't get out right so I, you know i often thought what would they have done if the building had burned down you know they just would have celebrated another auto de fe i guess but um yeah that was a strange experience and this is relevant because it speaks to what you ended up doing later as a writer. But I want to talk to you a little bit about your folks, because it wasn't easy for you as a young woman in your home, the way your father was a scientist. What kind of science did he do? Well, today you'd call it cell biology, I guess. Mm -hmm. He was, um, when he did it, it was bacteriology. Mm -hmm. He worked on an organism in World War II, typhoid was, typhus, I guess, was the second biggest killer on the Eastern Front next to the war itself. And uh, it was an organism that was thought to be useful and potentially useful in biological warfare. So uh, the Russians were trying to develop it as a bioweapon, and I guess my dad was working on it similarly in Kansas as a... Um, what you could do to, to protect a population against it, I guess. But as you've written and as you've described, he was tough. Well, tough he, on was, you. he was, I want to say, a confused and complicated person, but he was not a good respecter of boundaries. And he was a very needy person. And uh, he, if you didn't agree with him, he would become just enraged and not physically violent, but sort of terrifyingly angry. And um, the boundaries that he did uh, apparently respect or observe was he, there were things that he thought women couldn't do. Yes, or he thought that I shouldn't do. He had women graduate students. I've never really understood this, but I have four brothers, and it was made very clear that if I wanted a college education that I needed to pay for it because funds were limited and the future lies with boys. And um, so money for education was to go to the boys. And your mom had her own issues because she had been headed to medical school and she subjugated that to 
I never have understood this. She gave a different reason every time the question came up, but she was accepted at the U of I Medical School. She grew up in downstate Illinois with a full ride, which was just unheard of for women in the late 30s, early 40s. And then the day she was supposed to show up on campus, she didn't. Mm. And she had a different, unbelievable story for each time she told it. But then a year later, she entered graduate school at Iowa State in Ames. And Iowa State at that point was just an extraordinary place because one of the members of the cell biology, the big chemical biochemistry and so on faculty, was very close to a lot of the Jewish scientists who were at risk in Germany in the 30s. And so it was kind of like a holding depot for a decade hmm. for people like Yuri and so on, who went on to win Nobel Prizes. And so my dad, who went to C- City College, his faculty also then shared that City connection. College in New York. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And so he went out to Iowa. And they met there. And they met there. But then, yes, it was very much after that that, um, yeah. She, that she basically turned her back on career aspirations. And- but not happily. It, it, the way you describe it is that she felt if she couldn't do it, you couldn't do it. Something like that. I think that, I mean, this is my version of her narrative, and she isn't here to, mm-hmm. to give her version. But I think if I failed, then she could think it was the system. But if I succeeded, then it felt like, oh, I should have been able to do that. And that I was kind of like showing her up. Um, you know, she had many gifts that were valuable as a person and as a parent. But there was this other aspect of her that was very harsh and damaging, not just for me, but for my brothers as well. But the result of it was, what did it do, I guess, to you? I think it has left me with a lifelong sense of self-doubt and, um, you know, that I keep on keeping on. And in some ways, in some ways, it's made me both very pugnacious and also very self-doubting. So sort of a bizarre split personality. It it is. You know, you wrote a book in 2007 of essays that were in many ways autobiographical. And I think in that book, you said, I call myself a writer, but I do so without great conviction. And this is after being selling book after book, best-selling, writing bestseller after bestseller. I, I don't know what you have to do to qualify in your own mind as a writer, but that seems like one of the measures. Get you up w- at 5.30 and write for three hours every morning. <laughs> yeah. That, well. No, I don't do that. I think well, a real writer would. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know. That seems uh, severe. Um, so in 1996, you were at the University of Kansas and you came to the city of Chicago. 1966. 66, sorry. Mm-hmm. 66, which was a momentous year in the city. You came for a summer of service. Explain that and Describe what you found when you came here and how that impacted on you. Yes, I think that that was the defining experience of my life. It upended me in so many different ways, so many different preconceived notions that I had about everything. 66, a call went out, and I I always think of this with my generation, without the internet, we knew when to go, where to go, when to be at the mall, when to be marching. Amazing, huh? 
And um, this call came out for student volunteers. It was actually through the Presbytery of Chicago that Dr. King had agreed to come in response to requests, repeated requests from the local civil rights leadership who could not get traction against the daily administration on issues of housing and employment. So when he moved into that apartment building, they knew that it was going to be a volatile summer. I don't think anyone anticipated how very violent it was going to be, but they wanted, they asked for a hundred students who could be embedded in the communities and do service work, whatever was asked of us. Why'd that appeal to you? Oh, I, I had been longing to, you know, the sit-ins had already been taking place and, and the, the older sister of one of sit-ins my, in the South Freedom Summer right. at sixty four, and yeah. and um, the older sister of one of my friends had been arrested in Birmingham and um, was spent time in the Birmingham jail, and um, you know it was just in the air, and I so wanted to be part of it, but didn't really have the guts to just up and leave and go to the South for Freedom Summer or some of the things that stronger people than I volunteered for. So when this came up, it seemed like a way that I could take part in the civil rights movement in a manageable way. And they did not, the Presbyterians, they didn't have a religious test. They didn't care that I was Jewish. So I ended up, you, you just took whatever you were assigned to do. And of course, I thought I was going to do something important in the black community. And I was assigned to this program south of back of the yards, Polish, Lithuanian, it was the neighborhood was then at 70th and Damon. And um, <laughs> I was running a summer day camp for kids in the neighborhood. And what we were meant to do was soft propaganda um, on better Ashland Avenue, 1600 yes. West. At that point was a dividing line between black and white. Yes, And the kids used to stand our white kids on the west side of Ashland, black kids on the east side throwing rocks at each other. Mm. So um, our mission was to show them that there were different ways to embrace diversity than with rocks. And so it was very much a soft propaganda summer. The minister of the church that this was housed in was the best manager I ever worked for in all my working experience. And he had us so embedded in the city and in the community, I mean, we went to white citizen council meetings. We went to the big Catholic church in the neighborhood, 2,000 people at mass every Sunday. We went to their youth programs. We just, we heard every opinion possible in the neighborhood and in, and in the city, too. As you suggested at the beginning, the city was boiling over when King came here. And Marquette Park, which was not far from where you were right. working, became the site of a really, really violent incident in which King was marching, an open housing march, and was attacked and ended up saying, I, I didn't see I, crowds as vicious as this even in the... In Birmingham. In, in, yeah. And in, in Mississippi. South. I can't remember. Yeah. Yes. Were you, you were, were you were not in the park when that Well, happened? we were forbidden from taking part in any of these demonstrations. And so the strange... Our, strange experience. It was such a strange day in that neighborhood because everyone was in the park. And um, a week before, uh, or two weeks before, Cardinal 
Cody had sent out a pastoral letter that he required every priest in the diocese to read at Mass, uh, saying that open housing and access to jobs were Christ-like values. And St. Justin Martyr, the local church, went from 2,000 people at Mass to 200. They were furious. They felt betrayed by the church and the Democratic Party. And I always have felt that the beginning of the ultra-Republican DuPage County came out of that summer with the white flight to DuPage County. Well, I think nationally that summer was a turning point after the Civil Rights Acts were passed. There was a tremendous backlash, not just in the South, but in the cities. And you were you were a witness to the beginnings of it, I think. Yeah. Anyway, our one contribution was with all the fire trucks and cops in Marquette Park, locals had set fire to the rectory at St. Justin Martyr. So my team, the three of us, saw the fire. We were able to put it out before it took hold of the whole building. So that was, I guess, my one contribution that summer. To How, uh, well, but what contribution did the summer make to you? So in personal things and in public things, we were put up and local people put us up, the th- us three volunteers up in their homes. And um, the home that I was living in, uh, the woman was a baker at Davidson's Bakery and the man was a bus driver. And they had two daughters and one was severely developmentally disabled. And, you know, for all the maybe one-sided things that I've said about my family, the other side was that we were brought up to believe we were intellectuals, that we were smart, that we knew more than other people. And um, I looked at how this family cared for this child, and she was just part of their lives. And it was not in any way felt like, oh, this is a burden to us. And I thought, if my parents had had a child with those issues, they would have collapsed. They would not have known. It would have just been such more trouble than they could handle. And so it was my first maybe eye-opening into true empathy or seeing experience different from my own. But the other thing, too, was just in the public sphere, seeing how 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 enormous issues ended up affecting people personally at the street level. I guess it, I never had a very clear sense of direction and it took a long time for me to really find a direction, but it left me feeling this kind of passion and compulsion that people without voices needed to have a way to have their voices heard. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. 
And now save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. John Stewart is back in the host chair at the Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on the Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. The Daily Show podcast has everything you need to stay on top of today's news and pop culture. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition, wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to the show. You came back to Chicago after, I know you spent some time, a little time in New York, but you came back to Chicago. I thought I was going to be a writer, and um, God, I knew nothing. I was so bone ignorant. I uh, I didn't know you needed a sponsor. I didn't. I had a sort of a portfolio of short stories I'd written and history essays I'd written, but nobody wanted to see it. I just didn't. I'm. I was and am pretty shy about putting a foot in the door. So I ended up being a secretary and um, came back to Chicago, where I could also be a secretary. But at least I had a bit of a community. You also went to. You did a lot of academic work as well. You went, you studied American history. I think you got a PhD. Or, I did. Yeah. In American history. And then you got an MBA. Yes. <laughs> what, 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 tell me how all of that happened. All of this is a preface to how you ended up becoming a writer, but you, you, so you gave up the idea of, or at least you set aside the idea of writing and you did all of this other stuff. Well, I think writing was something that was very private and personal for me, fiction writing. Mm-hmm. And I continued to write. I have, I still have a lot of, you know, my posthumous writings uh, in a folder. But I didn't have confidence in my fiction writing voice, I guess you could say. So I think it was important to me in, in a, this is all hindsight. It wasn't what was consciously driving my actions. I was working as a secretary in the political science department. And um, the assistant dean, Emma Pitcher, who was the dean of students in the social sciences division, I- Here at the University of Chicago. I reported to her. And this was just a fluke, you know, I came here, my parents had sent me to secretarial school so that I would always have a skill to fall back on. And I went to an employment agency and they placed me here. It wasn't that I was drawn to this institution. Anyway, she felt, they had a fellowship that they were going to have to return to the Ford Foundation that someone had turned down. And so she suggested that it be given to me to do a history degree. And um, I had applied, actually, to study history, graduate history in a number of schools and had been turned down by all of them. Um, but she made the university <laughs> reverse its decision. So then you did what all great historians do and you got an MBA? So... um Along the way, I met and fell in love with and married Courtney Wright, who was part of the physics department. A here. scientist. Yeah. A scientist you did. Mm-hmm. I, I but, bet you that some therapist probably had a ball of wool with that one. But. Probably, but he was a very different <laughs> very different kind of person. If you ever met him, you've, um, he had served in the Royal Navy during the Second World War, and if you ever met him, um, 
you would think he was more like a sea captain than like a particle uh, physicist. Right. But um, I, I don't know. I did a lot of odd jobs. I worked for John Nesbitt. Can't even think of the name of his outfit. But he had been in the Johnson administration, and then he started this urban research company mm-hmm. that was um, doing the <coughs> conferences and publications for Fortune 1000 managers trying to figure out how to implement Title VII as it affected American businesses. So I was doing that and helping and writing stuff for him and um, helping run conferences on affirmative action and how to implement it. And um, sidebar, the something I could see already then that was just frustrating was everyone was angry that their victimization wasn't recognized. You know, that trying to implement affirmative action for African-Americans and for women of all colors. I'd be in these meetings where there were just this fury from Polish-Americans, Italian-Americans, and so on, on um, how they'd had it just as bad, maybe worse, and nobody ever gave them a hand up. And so I actually am a big fan of affirmative action, but I could see that it was already kind of blowing up in a yeah, thank God we've gotten over that. Huh? Right. So, so anyway, you, so Courtney so, felt that if I wanted a good job, I should get an MBA and get a good credential. And you, you went to work for CNA Insurance for like almost a decade. Yeah, and then while you were doing that, you took a course on crime fiction, right, up at Northwestern. Now you had always had an interest in this. This is what fascinates me because I, we've met before. The thing is, when I met you, the thing that struck me was you write these vivid, hard-boiled detective stories. I mean, the thing that makes them, uh, they're great and they're well-written in like the grand tradition of, of, of Hammett and Raymond Chandler and so on. But your hero is not uh, a man, but a woman. But the stuff is so vivid and so grounded and in the street and so on. And it's like, wait a second, here's this prim lady. Prissy. Uh, like, where does this come from? But apparently you had an interest in this from an early age. You were, you were interested in that kind of writing. It's still my favorite form of fiction. And, you know, when I started writing for publication, I had these grandiose dreams that I would do something I would be as memorable as Shakespeare with my dazzling command well, of to language. Set your, but, uh, set your sights high, I guess. But. but it's still, here I am 40 years later, still writing crime fiction. In getting ready to talk to you, I reread one of my favorite essays, which was an essay by Raymond Chandler that he wrote in 1944 called The Simple Art of Murder. Oh, right. It was the case for hard-boiled detective stories versus the sort of traditional English the Sherlock Holmes and and all of that. And one of the things, and, and it was a tribute to Dashiell Hammett, who was kind of a grandmaster, as you are, of the art, but one of the early ones. And he said, Hammett gave murder back to the kind of people that commit it for reasons, not just to provide a corpse and with the means at hand, not hand-wrought dueling pistols, kirari and tropical fish. He put these people down on paper as they were and he made them talk and think in the language they customarily used for these purposes. And it strikes me that that's what you did 
as well. And I'm wondering where that all came from. Dashiell Hammett was, he was actually, he worked for Pinkerton. But tell me the whole process of how you found this rich world in your head that became all of these great novels. Well, that's a good question. And the answer is... I mean, how did you know this world? Oh, I don't know this world. I still don't know this world. But I would say in some ways, it started with a chip on my shoulder. I think that's always been what gets me moving. And um, I had been reading crime fiction since since childhood or early adolescence. Rex Stout, he grew up in the same part of Kansas that I did. And he went to a one-room country school that was always beating up my school in baseball. Anyway, second wave feminism started shaping how I felt and thought about the world or started giving, started giving language to the issues that were really important to me or started giving language to why I, why I was always second guessing myself and why I was deferential and why I was, felt that all the different things that I felt that were negative about my experience. And then as I started going back and reading crime fiction and read Chandler actually for the first time when I was in my early 20s, still doing secretarial work to, at the university as I was working on my degree, and one of my brother secretaries introduced me to the hard-boiled school. So I'm reading these books, and women get to be vamps. They get to be victims. If they're virtuous, they basically can't tie their shoes in public without adult supervision. And it's all based on female sexuality. So a woman who has a sex life is, by definition, like Eve, trying to get good boys do bad things and inevitably failing. You know, Adam was the only success story that women have had in trying to get good boys to do bad things. And so I had a lot of anger about that, and I wanted to turn the tables on this depiction of women, but I didn't have confidence in my voice. And really, eight years went by where I was doing a lot of different jobs. And I had this very tough woman, Minerva Daniels, who was basically Philip Marlowe in drag. And she smoked, which I've never smoked. And you know, you shouldn't give your detective a habit that you don't know what they're doing with it. Like, when do people need a cigarette constantly, I guess, based (laughs) on the smokers I've known. Anyway, and then I was working at the CNA and uh, worked for a guy whom I always call Fred to avoid libel and slander suits, who um, he was really a pisser. And um, there was an October day. I was looking down at Grant Park. We were in his office. He was, as usual, undercutting his team. And my lips were saying, gosh, Fred, heck of an idea. And the balloon over my head was, you know, imagining him dead on a slab. (laughs) And um, V.I. Warshawski actually literally came to me in that moment, thinking thoughts on company time. And I thought, no, I don't want Philip Marlowe in drag. I want a woman like me and my friends. We're doing a job that didn't exist for us when we were growing up. We're batting our heads against an establishment that doesn't want us here, doesn't want us doing this. Only she hadn't been brought up to be a good Kansas girl. So she said what was in the balloon over her head. And she didn't worry about making waves or getting fired because she just didn't worry about stuff like that. Yeah. Was she who you 
wanted to be? I suppose you could say that she is who I wanted to be. And now, after the 22nd book in the series will be published in April, I'm taking a break from her because she has become too much like me instead of me (laughs) becoming too much like her. So she's going to go off. I don't know what she's going to be doing. Uh Something extremely adventurous. And I'm working on something very, a new character, a new everything. From the beginning, you sort of mastered, though, the art of, well, obviously conceptualizing complicated storylines, but also what makes all of these books yours and everyone who's really, really good at this is dialogue and the repartee between the hard-boiled detective and the world around them. What struck me based on what you just said was in your first book, Indemnity Only, which I went back to read because I was curious as to what the first book was like. Very early in the book, she's sort of grilling a guy and he says, who are you? She says, I'm a private detective. And he's incredulous. And he says, you, you're no more a detective than I'm a ballet dancer. And then she, of course, showed her license and she was dismissive of his dismissiveness. And I thought, wow, that must have been cathartic. It was fun. For for you. I mean, what strikes me, and I, you know, I spent most of my life here in Chicago. I was a nightside police r- reporter before mm. I started writing about politics. And I learned a lot about life and about the world covering that part of Chicago. I, I came to love the city, honestly, covering the sort of, I don't know if seamier, but the, mm-hmm. the earthier side of life in the city. And your writing reflects a sensitivity or a knowledge or what did you do? Like I had to go in at six to 2 a.m. every day and that's how I experienced this. How do you even research this to create authenticity? Well, mostly I try to imagine what it feels like to be that person in that situation. And um, I don't try to keep up with street language because even if I had an entree into it, it changes so fast. It would change between putting it on the page and the page being printed. But also I think some of the volunteer work that I've been able to do over the years has kept me grounded, connected to people who need a voice and who I think my writing is at its worst when I don't recognize the legitimacy of a point of view of a character, and it's at its best when I can imagine what it might be like to be that character. It's interesting, this notion of giving a voice to the voiceless. A lot of your plot lines would be familiar to people in some ways, the corporate greed or public corruption or your racial profiling or you know wrongful convictions. Or You wrote a book in 2003, I guess, that created quite garnered quite a bit of attention because you wrote about sort of the profiling of Muslims after the 9-11. Yeah, that got me some of my most memorable hate mail. <laughs> yeah. In some ways, not only did you create this sort of archetypal sort of female hero in the hard-boiled tradition, but you also found a way to give voice to your concerns and to give voice to people who you've who you may not know, but who are reflected in your characters. So the the books of mine that I think 
I've done the best job with come out of that place. And um, I read a book called Hardball, which is probably my personal favorite among my books because it's really grounded in that summer of 66, the whole storyline is. But also, um, did you know uh, Bob Kirshner? He was the chief deputy medical examiner of Cook County, and uh, he was a friend of mine mm-hmm. who died, sadly, young of uh, kidney cancer. But he was the first person to recognize the torture that was being done at Area 2. Mm. He, I mean, he, and he was quite— Police torture of— of, of witnesses and of suspects, people in custody, yeah. of suspects in custody. Mm-hmm. So he was he was not I don't even know the, the right adjectives to say he was not a bleeding heart. He was dismissive at first of claims of torture. He said, "Oh, police always rough someone up and they claim they've been tortured." And then he um, saw the characteristic burn marks from having had alligator clips put in the ears and having had an electric current run through them. And um, it completely changed him. And he became an expert on torture. He was an internationally sought-after person to do autopsies to prove or disprove claims of torture in custody. He started important institutes in the U.S. and in Tel Aviv for victims of torture. So it was through him that I became very invested in, in what was happening and the, the whole 20-year cycle of the city covering it up and then talking to people who actually had been uh, having someone break down in my arms describing what had happened to him and the loss of his sense of himself as a man. Sorry. So I, I had to write that, and um, I really think that that's, that book is my most authentic book. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of The Axe Files. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. And now, back to the show. I think that the passion that you show here and the passion that is reflected in these books is interesting to me because it's given you an outlet for things you deeply care about. And it's done that at the same time as providing these really readable and engrossing and stories with your hero at the core, and she's there to right these wrongs. And, you know, she mostly succeeds, at least in a, in a small way. Um, Stu Kaminsky, who was the person who taught the class that you mentioned at Northwestern. Yes. That, um, uh, also a mystery writer. Also a mystery writer. And um, he, he was really a good mentor. I had written 70 pages of what became Indemnity Only, and then I thought, oh, I don't know what I'm doing, blah, blah. And then 
a coworker told me about his class, knew what I was trying to do. And he was very helpful. I mean, with things like dialogue and I was using all these 30s tropes and he said, no, you've got to make it your voice now. And so really he was enormously helpful in shaping how I was doing what I was doing. But do you, let me just interrupt you. I'm sorry to do no. this, but um, as a writer, I'm interested in this. How do you imagine these conversations? I mean, how much thought do you give to the words? And yeah, this is how it would go down in an authentic way. This sounds inauthentic to me. How do I invest my hero with that sort of chip on her shoulder without it being overdone? I mean, Oh, I don't think about it in that way. I think about it in an emotional way. I think this in this conversation with this feeling in it, and then I, I actually physically feel it often in my hands. If, uh, if a confrontation is feeling too violent, I need to dial it back because it's a level of violence that isn't appropriate for that confrontation. Or also, you know, the old architectural slogan, less is more, is something that I constantly try to keep in mind. Mm-hmm. I override a lot and then I have to trim it back and, and pull it back. And sometimes, you know, a more authentic emotion will come from less being said than more being said. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's more feeling what the characters are feeling and then speech coming out of feeling it's actually i think as i think of a thread through all of this all of the great sort of hard-boiled detective writing most of the heroes are not all that interested in talking and you know they say what they need to Mm -hmm. and the best lines are often not very long that's such a good point i hadn't thought of that but you're absolutely right you had three books, I think, published, maybe more, while you were still working at CNA. Yeah, and, my first three. Yeah, and they didn't like it. Well, I that's also complicated. They felt that I was had split loyalties, and that I wasn't giving a, a thousand percent to the company. Why did you stay there? Oh, inertia, probably fear. Fear that the other gig wouldn't work out. Yeah. Anyway, uh, my last performance review, it was really funny to me. They had brought in consultant to, um, they felt their management teams were not creative enough. And um, so they brought in some consultants to help middle management become more creative. And then I had this, my final performance review before I resigned was that I was too creative to be happy at the company. (laughs) So I felt like it was like Goldilocks. Some people are too creative. Some people aren't creative enough, but someone they we had to have someone who was just right and then um oh god maybe i shouldn't even be saying this on the air but i said this in an interview about a year after i had resigned and i got a letter from their legal department saying we monitor everything that you're saying about the company you know threatening me with some kind of vague consequences if i badmouthed the company i was like so my editor who was a wonderful woman uh was married to one of the top litigators in the country. And um, Jay kindly wrote them a letter basically saying, get a life, guys. Um, <laughs> Were you worried when you got that letter? Well, of course, anyone, any naive, unsupported by lawyers person who doesn't 
relish the idea of going into a courtroom would feel threatened by vague threats of litigation. Probably gave you more fodder for future. Right. And also, you know, now it just seems funny to me, but gosh, like I hadn't had a raise for two and a half years, but they were paying someone to monitor everything I said. That made me feel good. It was like, okay, all that money that I didn't get paid in raises. And I was <laughs> the top seller of computers to insurance agents in my division. That Man, I'm glad you got out of that. So you don't just express yourself through your books. You're also, you've been, you're, you're an activist, been very involved in abortion rights for one, which is an issue you I think you were on the board of Day Rally or I was, yeah. yeah. That's another issue that seems very current <laughs> right now. Yeah, really. Tell me about your involvement in that and some of the other things that you do outside of your writing to try and advance the civil liberties and the causes that, that have been close to you for I guess since 1966. Right. So I don't do as much as I used to. I just don't have the energy, which is really frustrating and annoying. I guess my husband always felt that I spread myself too thin and that my books did more good than my activism did. Um, but I've never felt that I was doing enough. So um, I guess some of the things that I've been involved in professionally, I started an organization that's an advocacy organization for women in the crime fiction field, Sisters in Crime. Yeah, It's now being run by very dynamic young women. It's doing, I'm so impressed with the current generation of leadership, but we now have something like 5,000 members worldwide. And You started this in 1986. Yeah. How many were involved then? Oh, uh, 25 people showed up for the initial meeting. Uh-huh. So, you know, I had been, oh God, I both lack self-confidence and I, at the same time, run my mouth too much. And then I'm always shocked at what I've actually said. Anyway, <laughs> I was at a conference and made some quite aggressive statements about women in the mystery field. I just published two books at that time. And then I, I became a lightning rod for both pro and con, what was going on with women in the mystery. And I started getting letters and phone calls from women all over the country. Had I said this, had I advocated censorship, had I advocated burning books, all the things that kind of segued out of some smart-ass remarks I made in public. And then I started hearing from all of the ways in which women were disrespected as writers. And I mean, I myself, I was at one conference where my dinner partner, the dinner man said, was I married? And uh, I said, yes. And he said, well, it's good that you have this hobby so that you don't bother your husband when he comes home from work. Oh. And I was like, I said, no, I spent all my spare time on abortion activism and my husband does all the housework. <laughs> that actually wasn't true, but um, kind of ended that conversation. But anyway, so just like, just lots of disrespect of women as writers, which translated into women not getting their books reviewed, as we found when we became an organization and started studying it. We found a crime novel by a man was seven times more likely to be reviewed in a major publication than one by a woman. And this means libraries don't know you, bookstores don't know you, and so you, you go out of print very rapidly. So we really addressed that. but. The organization started, I was hearing all of these complaints, and I thought of Flo Kennedy's great line, don't agonize, organize. So I 
held a breakfast at our big national conference and invited all the women I knew and um, said, you know, either we need to start an organization to fight this or we just stop whining and go about our business. And so everyone wanted to do this. And so that was where we started. Talk about your activism around the abortion issue, because right now, and even as we speak in this week, there's been this terrible example in Texas of a woman who whose baby was had a fatal disorder and whose pregnancy was threatening her health and ability to have more children, but was proscribed from having a right. abortion by the new Texas abortion law. Given that you've probably been working on this issue for half a century, what is your reaction to all of this? Oh, I'm both exhausted and enraged at the same time. I'm so tired of the two visions of women as either hooters, waitresses, revealing everything in their bodies to the public, or as incubators, but not as human beings with lives, rights, voices. I am so tired of it. And you know, here at the University of Chicago Law School is one of the men who drafted that Texas law. Can't remember his name now, but um, so, yep, they're pretty proud of themselves. Um, And I guess I have to say that the last eight years I have spent being depressed and terrified in equal measures with the assault on rights across the board, the stacking of federal courts with people with absolutely no competence or experience, but only a particular ideological viewpoint. I'm terrified about the future of all rights in this country. And women's rights are always kind of the first to be jettisoned, especially for women of color. So um, I'm not able to, I don't have the strength or the time or the stamina to um, be as aggressively active as I did, although I spent the second half of 2022 working on different campaigns to uh, do my part to keep reproductive health. Mm -hmm. There were initiatives around the country. And do you think, is this going to factor into future works of yours? Well, I think it's part of the issue with the book that I'm publishing in April is that my own kind of exhaustion and sense of pain filtered too much into the novel. Mm. And that's why I'm turning away from VI for a while. Sending VI on vacation. Yeah. And I'm writing something that I hope will be just kind of more for fun. Although, as I wasn't sleeping last night, I was thinking, oh no, poor Lily, my 75-year-old ex-CIA agent. She was supposed to be carefree, but she's already (laughs) not. (laughs) I want to ask you about another initiative of yours called Sarah and the Two Sea Dogs Foundation. Not just because the the title of the foundation is so intriguing, but because of the mission. What I wanted, our mission, is to support women and children in the arts, letters, sciences, um, and also to support reproductive rights. And so initially, we were looking at programs that we don't accept requests for, for funding. We give money to existing programs. We support a small feminist press, Antloop Press. We support one of my favorite programs is Girls in the Game, which is an after-school program for that uses sports to help girls in Chicago public schools with 
all the kinds of issues that children face these days. But sadly, because of the of the political wins, we've had to give more and a bigger and bigger fraction of our giving has gone to reproductive health. Mm-hmm. And um, in a way, I really resent that because I just feel like helping kids and helping women do things that are liberating, that just allow the imagination to soar. It just, it gives you so much better a, a society, you know, people feel free and and can just take chances and creativity can be such a liberating outlet instead of anger and need and poverty and all these other things that we seem to prefer as a society. So, Or at least uh, that we tolerate. All right. Well, let me just say, I'm so happy that your creativity found its voice because we've all benefited Thank you. Uh, That's from it. Kind. And I uh, urge every one of my listeners to read everything that you've ever written because they will be engrossed by it and they'll enjoy it. And they'll uh, fall in love with your character, even if she has to go off on vacation now for a little while, the I. Warshawski. Sarah Paretsky, what a delight to be with you. Thank you so much. You're very kind. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Miriam Fender Annenberg. The show is also produced by Saralina Berry, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Steve Lichtai and Haley Thomas. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.